Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Happy 2021, everybody. Today, the new year, it's a good chance to sort of look back and sum up a little bit and think about where we're headed. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. This show is really about translational genomics. So I was thinking back on the $1,000 genome and how uh, years ago there was this big prize posted with a lot of fuss and bother about it, that there was going to be a million-dollar prize for whoever was first uh, uh, do a $1,000 genome. And that prize was never awarded, not because we didn't get there, we certainly did, but because the goal became obsolete before it even, before it was surpassed. Uh, as we became closer to it, it sort of was irrelevant. As the price dropped, it became more and more evident that increasing the rate of data collection wasn't actually the rate-limiting step for genomic medicine. Not because it wasn't a challenge, but it wasn't the challenge. What was, I, I think, was the ability to manipulate it, the ability to um, make that information valuable in terms of improving outcomes and improving lives. So I have here today two guests that sort of epitomize um, that challenge. Uh, Dr. Noura Abulhusen, um, a founding division chief of genomic medicine in the Department of Medicine and clinical director of the Institute for Genomic Health, both at the medical school at Mount Sinai in New York. Um, and Amir Kenny, the founding director of the Institute for Genomic Health. Uh, her bio describes her as a statistical and population geneticist working on problems at the interface of genetic ancestry, very large-scale genomics, and medicine. And so you guys, the two of you together, kind of are translational medicine incarnate, like the embodiment of trying to establish a relationship between theoretical and clinical. If you were a short story, you would be a symbol of that. Um, how did this partnership come to happen? Uh, I love the long story um, or the short story? story. <laughs> What's a better story? story? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it, we will. I'll try to keep it short, but Emer will also fill in some of the details that I perhaps have forgotten. Um, so I did. Um, I did all my training at Mount Sinai and took my first faculty position uh, in uh, the Institute for Personalized Medicine at Mount Sinai, wanting to do personalized medicine, whatever that meant to me at the time, and happened to be placed in an office that was just next, do next door to Dr. Emer Kenny, um, whom I hadn't interacted with very much prior to that and didn't know all that much about. But, you know, we shared some space and we started talking and learned that we had very common interests and goals just coming from very different perspectives. Um, so we started to think about ways to work together and, uh, and here we are. Um, but there really was one example of uh, a project that turned into what. Uh, I like to think of now as an ongoing and lifelong collaboration with, with Emer. Um, and, and it's really, uh, Emer, I, I want you to take over at this point because uh, you really do tell the story, I think, 
in such a nice way and it's such a fond memory and it makes me very happy about where we've come from and, and where we are now. Yeah, it, it, it's actually one of my favorite stories too. <laughs> um, so I did not train at Mount Sinai. In fact, I was a Mount Sinai blow-in at the time. And this was, uh, Nora, make sure I'm not lying here. I think it was 2013. Is that about right? I think so. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, Laura, I came very much from a basic science uh, research background, uh, trained as a population geneticist and statistical geneticist. Uh, in, and I'd come, I think, from Stanford at the time where I had done my postdoc and uh, joined the faculty at Mount Sinai and was really um, working a lot with data in the biobank at Mount Sinai, which is one of the most diverse biobanks in the world, which was really what attracted me to the institution. And um, we were doing research on human height, which for uh, a long, long time has been very interesting to me. Uh, all human anthropometric traits, actually, uh, really as a way to uh, start to understand health systems data, not being familiar with it uh, very much. And um, one day, my graduate student came into the office shaking, and she said, Emer, I think I might have found something. And she showed me her data, and it turns out that she had done some genomic discovery analysis and found uh, a variant. And if individuals have this variant in two copies, it confers a very huge effect on height. So um, for women, it would be uh, 10 inches lower than average height. For men, it would be about eight inches lower than average height. And uh, for those in science who know the genetic architecture of height, that very rarely happens. Right. Uh, so we were pretty excited about this finding, and uh, we had some celebrations. But of course, uh, got very curious what this variant might be doing more systemically. Um, and at that point, that was really one of the first points uh, that uh, Nora and I were starting to chit chat and think about things. Uh, so Nora had some ideas that we could really follow up, opportunistically looking at uh, data in the health record of patients who were harboring two copies of this variant. And uh, sure enough, what we were able to discover is uh, that this variant not only affected height, but affected many other um, systems, or, uh, musculoskeletal uh, systems, uh, and it turned out to be a variant uh, that underlay a, a little characterized collagen disorder, specifically in uh, a population, Puerto Rican populations are, are populations of Puerto Rican descent. Um, and that was um, very exciting from a scientific discovery perspective for me, and certainly had I had a, a career as I had had previously in uh, a genetics department in a university, that's probably where the story would have ended. It probably would have been, um, you know, written a paper, published, and, and that would have been, you know, the end of that. But um, because of Nora's uh, insistence that, no, 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 we should actually tell people about this and uh, interact with uh, physicians who might be treating 
patients who may harbor this, uh, we actually went then to talk to um, uh, medical colleagues in pediatric orthopedics and endocrinology who may see um, children who might have related hip dysplasia, also colleagues in uh, medical genetic services uh, who might uh, be able to diagnose a genetic disorder, and certainly colleagues in uh, the genetic testing lab that was at Mount Sinai at the time with this evidence uh, who could develop an actual diagnostic test for uh, this variant. So for me, um, coming from basic research, this really was just uh, really out, out, you know, out of my valley, like out of my wheelhouse, certainly. Right. <laughs> uh, I was definitely following Nora's lead there, but so exciting. So, so exciting. It made total sense. Yeah, it was, it was really, it was fantastic. Very formative experience. You know, it's interesting because even the way you phrase it, you were saying you found a variant that had an effect on the architecture of height. Whereas to me, that variant with, what did you say, 10 inches difference for women? Did I hear that right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's pathogenic variant, right? Like that's not a, that's not a sort of incremental uh, change in height. In, in height, no. you didn't expect to find, right? No, I remember, um, you know, I, I remember giving a talk that summer in the Biology of Genomes conference. And when I, uh, and we had just got the finding, actually, that we just found the variant, the data had just come over off the sequencers. I actually analyzed that data all through the night and gave <laughs> a talk the first thing the next morning. <laughs> That's so exciting. Um, and I remember, I know it was, it was, it was very exciting. And then I, I, I set up and I, I um, I described the effect size of the variant under receptive mode, and there was an audible gasp in the auditorium. <laughs> <laughs> you know what how, I was thinking um, when you said that's that? How unusual that is! When you said that story, I was thinking, well, that's not so. So height is one of the examples I give people uh, in our classes when I'm trying to teach something about the difficulty of pinning down the difference between what's a pathology and what's a trait. Because it's actually very hard to find the line. And that's something I've personally lived through, let's just say, with with one of my kids, this question of what's the line between just sort of normal short stature and uh, something that's that's not normal. And when you were saying this, I was thinking like, ah, 10 inches. How would that, like, from normal, where would that leave somebody? That's really not in the realm of and I was so relieved when you said it came along with other things actually it was it was like a, the ethics part of me was just relieved because I no longer had to 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 to, to try, to, try to work through that mental compromise of like yeah the, the interesting thing was that it came with other things but those other things could be readily missed or misdiagnosed or you know just thought of as um, being disparate features that had nothing to do with the short stature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what, what we found was that, you know, this was a condition that was prevalent and that was undiagnosed for the most part. So, and I, and I, so I should again, mention, yeah, I should mention and acknowledge that we uh, sort of got scooped, but also got lucky depending on which side of the coin you, you look at. In, in that another group from Baylor had sequenced a family from Puerto Rico and uh, with 
um, clinically diagnosed Steele syndrome, which it, this turns out to be something called Steele syndrome, mm-hmm. and had identified the molecular alteration in that family. So it was, you know, they got their story out before we got our story out. We had discovered the exact same variant. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to me, it was also a little bit of a relief. <laughs> well, did you want, did you want something named after you? It. Did you want something, do you want something yeah. named after you? Is that oh, one of your no. goals? Is that one of your no. life goals? So if it's not your life goal, then it really doesn't <laughs> no, matter, right? Yeah. <laughs> then you just know it's just like supportive data. Yeah, that's great. So this is one great story. How is this an institute? Like, where, what are the, the bigger sort of more flowery statements about what the institute is, is sort of like to make these things happen on a, 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 a bigger level across all disciplines? Yeah, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it, you put the nail on it, uh, on the head when you introduced this. Uh, certainly for me as a geneticist, uh, who, you know, cut her teeth in the era of large-scale genomics. I mean, I was a grad student when the first GWAS were being done. Um, and really to see where that technology brought us in research and then to see that bottleneck and bringing that into implementation and into clinical care, uh, particularly working in a academic medical center, uh, just became very frustrating. And I think that uh, this story... Um, is, uh, you know, a poster boy for many, many other stories, whether you're thinking about monogenic disease or whether you're thinking about more complex architectures for disease. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, there's, there's a, many more miles down the road that we can go by applying, uh, you know, rigorous scientific methodology to actually demonstrate in translation space um, not only uh, the clinical utility of uh, some of these findings from research, uh, but also try to examine some of the outcomes and how they may change outcomes. Um, and certainly there's a lot of work to be done um, in terms of expediting that whole process and that process not taking years and years and years and not moving at a glacial pace, but actually thinking about scaling that up and how do you do that. Um. And when you talk about this, are you talking about um, working mostly in the area of diagnosis? In other words, working with somebody that has a phenotype, um, that has something going on and trying to identify it, or population screening uh, with healthy populations, or sort of both of those in your purview? Well, certainly... Um, I was just going to say, go ahead. Like so go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, we can start this one over, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually kind of enjoy it. <laughs> uh, I was about to say the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we, we do finish each other's sentences. Well, I was going to say, I was exactly going to say, it's cool you guys finish each other's sentences, but it's harder when you try and start each other's sentences. That's the tricky one. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Um, well, okay, I'll try again. Um, but we, we do, we definitely do a little bit of both. And, you know, something you were saying, Laura, really um, uh, resonated with me. Where is that line to be drawn between what's normal or abnormal and what is health and what is disease? And at some point, we start to think about 
uh, all of this is uh, being more continuous and along a spectrum. And certainly we're learning more and more every day about how some conditions are not, you know, common chronic diseases that may have an underlying molecular etiology, uh, if you look. Uh, and that, uh, on the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, people may be at higher genomic risk for various conditions, but never develop those conditions in their lifetime. Uh, and we're all somewhere along that uh, spectrum. Right, right. I I feel like, sort of, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to sort of argue with myself a little bit, but I feel like where we are right <laughs> now, as I follow it, is there's really starting to be a broad consensus for a handful of cancer susceptibility syndromes, when we talk about healthy population screening, a handful of cancer susceptibility screenings and some conditions that cause serious heart disease, um, that we're in a position, if we can get a few more ducks in a row, like in, a, in, in the right setting already, to effectively do that kind of screening. And when I hear people talk about population screening, it's always aimed at those, right now, at those two things. Um, so do you see us in the near future going beyond cancer and heart attacks? Yeah, I think that we, it's a really good place to start because certainly those conditions are the ones with a lot of evidence for actionability, preventability, better management with that knowledge. Um, but it, it's, it's a starting point. And it doesn't necessarily account for different settings and different populations uh, and different needs that exist in health systems. Uh, so one of the things that we're trying to do here is really take into account what the data is telling us. And that means what are, what are the patients telling us? What is our patient population? Um, and, you know, we're obviously in New York City with a highly diverse patient population um, that's been largely underrepresented in genomic research and genomic medicine applications, uh, we would love to go beyond what we know and address that and make genomic medicine happen for diverse patient populations. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly point. that's that's one of the giant issues and, and something that's on everybody's mind this year, uh, last year, but uh, we're not ending, right? Like, so coming out of last year, it's <laughs> on everybody's mind. Year. It's <laughs> never, somebody, somebody on, on Twitter referred to this, this past week as just 2020 bonus content, <laughs> if you enjoyed last year. Is it but, bonus though? I think there was <laughs> no, a lot of sarcasm yeah. in that. Yeah, it was like, for those of you who enjoyed 2020, <laughs> we're just having some bonus content. Um, Anyway, but so, yeah, New York is diverse. And, Amir, you mentioned that one of the draws to coming here was a diverse um, data set. So yeah. how is that working out? Do you, do you sort of feel that appreciably what you're finding is different? Um, and I have sort of a parallel question to that. It's something I was just having a conversation with somebody about carrier screening and we were talking about depth versus breadth in a weird way about carrier screening where uh, the the sort of impetus is to add conditions 
that are more and more and more ultra rare. Yeah. Uh, whereas in fact, what she was saying, which I thought was very interesting, is that to go deeper in more common conditions and to get better at identifying mutations from more populations than we do right now actually is better medicine than to add the vanishingly rare or once you will never see it again condition. So do you find that that's yeah, and, true and in get, general? Well, to get better also for carrier screening at, at, at actually articulating a residual risk that's tied to a relevant population. Right. Residual but, risk, but, yeah. penetrance, all of that. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I yeah, heard some I mean, figures that amazed me the other day about cystic fibrosis, um, about that cystic fibrosis is obviously a very com a more common disease in populations we study all the time. But when it happens in black kids and in Hispanic kids, it takes longer to diagnose them. They're more likely to be diagnosed late where they're already sick. And they're more likely to fall into the category of rare conditions where we don't have new medications for them. I was actually really amazed by how stark those data were. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, um, exactly what you're saying, Laura, it's, you know, one of the things that, you know, so even today, as we're talking about diseases like cystic fibrosis, or, you know, thinking about using polygenic risk scores in, in cancer and in common cancers and, and heart disease, uh, you know, the scientific basis, and, and more specifically, the genomic databases from which we are drawing uh, the evidence for those uh, we know are very skewed in their representation for humans on the planet. Um, and, and it's almost any database you pick. Uh, so that I, you know, I, I think that argues for going deeper into more populations for things that we have, we know that are medically actionable or we have characterized very well because there is so much we don't know, uh, either in variant space or in aggregate risk space uh, in many populations. And to me, from the scientific perspective, I genuinely think we're at the very early days of how we're using this information. Um, and I think uh, that we're quite unsophisticated today in how we're using this information uh, I think we need to, um, and of course, in, empirically, because we're drawing on empirical observation for all of this, uh, empirically, our databases are, are um, not as, as representative as we, as we could hope for uh, um, in this space. So I think scientifically, uh, this is still uh, this is an area that, that needs a lot of attention. Uh, some of the questions I think are going to be very interesting. I, uh, for example, um, how representative do the databases have to be uh, so that you have tests that perform um, in sort of in some sense of equivalence across different diverse populations? Uh, you know, how representative do um, the databases have to be to reduce error or to reduce um, noise in some of these data or, or, you know, in diagnostics and reduced levels of the U.S., which are, you know, quite costly for health systems to try and work out. And do you so, have a, do you have a uh, sense? Do you have a sense of that? Do you have like I, if I were wondering that question, I would ask you, right? Like, 
<laughs> uh, you know, I don't have a, a easy sort of rule of thumb yet, but I think we're getting closer to figuring out some of these questions. Um, you know, in, I think that one of the straightforward answers is possibly you do not need a database that's equally representative of every population on the planet to be able to get to a place where the databases can be useful for diagnosis or prediction for every human on the planet. Uh, so I don't think we need that, but we probably do need to get uh, somewhere closer to where we are today. Um, that's a hand wavy argument. And then the question is how, you know, how, how far do we have to move the needle? Uh, one of the things that, you know, um, I think that we really need to pay very close attention to in the short term in the next, you know, five to 10 years is really uh, building up infrastructure partnerships, community engagement and trust into populations and areas of the world where we really have no idea um, in, from a genetics perspective uh, what's going on um, and understanding in those areas of the world and communities in the world uh, what is important to them and what would they, you know, what, how could genomic medicine improve their lives? Uh, and I think that those are questions that we really need to think about in the short term. Um, in the longer term, I have no doubt that uh, in certain areas of the world, we'll continue to um, produce enormous amounts of genomic data. I think at a conference last year, Illumina said that over 150 petabytes of data had come off of their sequencing machines in 2019, <laughs> which is enormous. Uh, I can't. It's big data. It's, it's well beyond my brain. Like that just like, you hear that and it just shuts down. And, and, and <laughs> I was one of the questions I was going to ask you, I, there was a bioarchive uh, preprint put up at the very end of 2020 where they suggested that uh, they could get the cost of sequencing soon down to $15 a genome. Now, it's a preprint, right? So, and I'm not in any position to say whether that's possible or not. But what would that change? Like what would $15 genome do that we don't, we don't do right now? Like if it was essentially free, right? The, the, the generating of data, whereas of course the, the, the use of it is not free at all. Um, the human time is not free at all. Would it change anything from where we are right now? Uh, yeah, I do. I think I think it would. Um, I definitely think that there's an economic argument to make, uh, and but that you know it's very variable depending on where you live in the world. Uh, but there's an economic argument to make whereby uh, folks who have invest in incentives to cover sequencing, there is by which they'd be much more inclined to cover sequencing or use sequencing in areas of medicine that is not currently used. Um, so I think that that's true. I, I think that the answer is not that simple because it's not just about the unit cost for a specific test. Um, it's also about access. So um, if, you know, it's no good having a $15 genome if you are not living in an area of the world that can afford to buy the sequences that produce those genomes. Yeah, and if you don't have the expertise to explain it, and if you don't have Correct. the medical services to back it up, I, Jim Evans, Correct. Jim Evans, the great, the great now retired Jim Evans used to say, 
a nickel for a genome, a nickel for an elephant is a good deal if you have a nickel and you need an elephant. <laughs> That's what you used to say about, about whole genome sequencing. And it, it's still really true, right? It's still really true. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the, the other obstacles, the other structural obstacles. First of all, somebody asked me, again, so I thought, well, I'm talking to Nora and Amir today. I can ask them. This is fabulous. I got an email today where someone, someone in the press said to me uh, that there was, that Francis Collins had set a goal um, said that, or a prediction that uh, genomic and genetic uh, um, medicine would be a much bigger part of medical school education in, in, in these past 10 years. And Nora, I guess I ask you, uh, where are we in that? Is that still a giant obstacle? Um, how much non-genetics professionals, un medical professionals understand about genetics and genomics? And, uh, and are we doing better? So it, it is an obstacle. I hope it's not still a giant obstacle because I do think that public awareness of genomic medicine has increased uh, in such a way that, you know, it's permeating all types of people, including healthcare professionals, who have been very separate from the genetics professionals. Um, and, you know, maybe it is becoming more accessible the more we hear about things like 23andMe and other types of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, um, and it stops being as scary for the non-geneticist to take it on. But the truth is that today in medical schools across the country and probably across the world, we still don't do a good job of integrating genomic medicine into the way you know, future physicians will be thinking and treating patients. Um, so we're striving to do better uh, at every level. Uh, so what, and what I mean by that is that there are practicing physicians today that are certainly very interested in understanding more about genomic applications that they could use uh, in clinical care. Their patients are asking them more about genetics and genomics. And as you very well know, there aren't enough medical geneticists and genetic counselors uh, to take on all of the needs and uh, desires of, of people who uh, want to increase um, genomic access. So non-genetic specialists uh, can learn about the genomic applications relevant to their specialty, whether it's uh, primary care or a uh, different um, subspecialty practice. And, uh, and use that in their practice, much like they do other technologies. It just hasn't been the way we think about genetics and genomics uh, traditionally in the clinical realm. But that is changing, and we will see now more and more um, OBGYNs who are comfortable with not just uh, reproductive genetics, but also some cancer genetic screening and testing um, that is happening because they're the ones seeing patients every year for wellness exams and learning about their family history and risks and, and start to build that knowledge. We can do more. Uh, so we're starting to innovate a little bit in that space. Um, for example, we just launched last 
summer, uh, a new genomic medicine track for internal medicine residents. Uh, so that interested physician trainees in internal medicine uh, can apply to be part of this track to learn about genomic medicine and its current and potential future applications that they'll certainly be seeing in their lifetime, regardless of what specialty they end up going into. Uh, and, you know, it's obviously new. We just started doing this, but it's been really well received. The residents are very excited about it. In conjunction with that, we started teaching all of the interns in their first year of residency uh, in internal medicine uh, a genomics 101 basics course so that they're all uh, receiving some exposure to genomics. And then those who are particularly interested can go on and apply to be in this track that gives them uh, added curriculum and research in genomics. And the hope is that once you start to build out that knowledge in uh, the non-genetic specialists, that you can then feed that in various parts of medicine uh, where it will be used most appropriately. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, um, I feel like uh, when I was first coming into this field, well, maybe not, maybe somewhere after with it, but when they first started to have, uh, so I guess it was after 2013, many years after I was into this field, when they started to have panel mm -hmm. tests instead of just BRCA testing. So BRCA testing was still sort of a niche thing done mostly by genetics professionals, mm -hmm. but then people got more comfortable with it. Then after 2013, suddenly there's all these panel tests. And I remember going to a meeting, a bunch of oncologists, and they were all like, I don't order panel tests because I don't want the information that's on panel tests because I don't know what to do right. with it. Like, please don't give right. that to me. Like, they would pay extra to not get it, right? Um, and I don't, think you, I don't think you see that anymore, whatever, seven, five, seven years later. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not in that area. Um, I think the cancer space, you know, and the cardiovascular space probably have done um, better than some other fields where there's less exposure to, you know, broader panels or exome sequencing types of tests. Uh, so the comfort is increasing, and you see it in some specialties more than other others where, um, there's just been a little bit less knowledge that, you know, you could use genomic applications really meaningfully to help care for your patients. Uh, but you're right, it's changing and the field is changing so quickly. Uh, I think from Emer and my experience in the last couple of years, uh, physicians are very interested and very engaged and uh, want to know more about uh, what, what they can do. Uh, want to know also the lim limitations of what they should or should not be doing and when to uh, refer to genetics colleagues for help. Uh, so we are building out ways to do that. Um, and certainly I, I know others are uh, around the country thinking about these, uh, these issues of access and how to scale and, and broaden the appropriate uh, application of genomic medicine. Well, we I think can't the next scale. five years are going to be great. We can't scale genomic medicine through genetic specialists. I mean, I, I'm a genetic well, right. counselor, like, right. and I would love yeah. to say everyone should see a genetic counselor for everything all the time, because I think genetic counselors are fantastic, but there just aren't enough. And, and I totally agree. medical <laughs> geneticists, there's like five, right? So there's like five in the country. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so 
So you guys can one of them. Yes, we all know one. Yes. Yeah, maybe more than five, but not a lot more than five. Um, so if we can't, I always can't... like to say I, I love that the job security that that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, no, but but it is very serious. Like we have to figure out how to make this accessible through primary care physicians or through specialists looking at various areas, or it's just not going to happen, um, really, for very many people. And I yeah, think... Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that um, we, ha we have to innovate in this space, and we have to be the thought leaders to expand genomic medicine usage across different... Sectors. You are literally um, the thought leaders. So, like, what... <laughs> <laughs> what what is what it, first let me just ask you what has the last year been like for you guys did you uh um i mean awful either oh too much time with your family or no time with your family one of those extremes nothing in between i know all that but i, I, I i'm saying in terms of the institute was there a pivoting around covid is that like changed everything for a bit what's going on Uh, well, yeah, I mean, immediately, um, like I think many other academic research institute centers and departments, uh, there was a big impact. We don't do wet lab research, but we do do patient-facing clinical research. And, of course, uh, we had shutdowns and pauses and things like that that were occurring. Um, I genuinely, and Nora, I'd love to hear your thought, but I don't know that I remember much about... Uh, April, May, June, <laughs> that, uh, that really just went in such a uh, whir. Um, and, oh, I remember. Uh, oh, yeah, I like, think it's really interesting. We have an opposite reaction to that time. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I just went down a rabbit hole the whole, like, I was in New York the whole, like, three months in a rabbit hole. Like, just, I couldn't. It was so hard to do any other work. But so what did you guys, how did that? Yeah. yeah. Well, we did, um, we certainly did, um, like many others, pivot some uh, time and resources towards uh, thinking about uh, COVID and COVID research. Um, you, know, the t you know, obviously, since we're on the translational uh, kind of spectrum of research, or we're thinking about it's not necessarily all that useful in the initial ways of infections, but we really were trying to think down the road when we start to learn more about the biology of this disease and the molecular markers, whether they're um, DNA markers or other, that might be useful to think about prevention, uh, prevention uh, health management, treatment severity, uh, that we really want to think about if we could leverage infrastructure that we were already thinking about to, to um, develop out for uh, those types of implementation um, strategies and approaches. You know, let me ask so you something, because I think COVID yeah. is a really good example of this. I've been concerned. So clearly, there are genetic implications for, in terms of, uh, implications is the wrong word. G genetics has implications for who gets sick, who doesn't get sick, severity, and so on. I'm sure there's something in there. And yet, I think most people looking at it fairly would agree that those implications may be able to be dwarfed by social 
implicate by the social oh, issues. Completely, completely dwarfed. Agree. And this is a case completely where completely agree. Yeah. I think this is a big, big challenge, not just here, but in many parts of translational mm. medicine, is that genetics I call it gene washing. It tends to wash out people's understanding. It's like uh, it's mm. like a, they get a gene, somebody tells me, and the gene can be like, you're 2% more likely to have this happen, or even yeah. half a we percent. We have to be so careful about how we communicate yeah. Yeah. the types yeah. of findings that may come out of you know genomic studies of COVID. You're absolutely right. I think that's a very valid concern. Do you find that in other, like non-COVID things? Do you find yourself constantly challenged to not have you're the people coming in with the genetics piece I, I think of it as like shiny you know it's like bright and shiny for people yeah, like they... yeah I, I don't you know I, I think, think that we sort of go ahead Emer. <laughs> you go ahead <laughs> well I, I was gonna say I, I think Emer and I talk about this a lot and we think about it a lot because you know they ultimately as I said at the beginning, we've come from very different perspectives, but our, our goals are very aligned. And we want to ensure that genomic medicine, genomic applications of all sorts are, are making things better for humanity. Uh, so how do you ensure that you're always communicating findings correctly? How do you ensure that genetic findings are not misinterpreted or um, you know, as you termed it, causing some washing away of other important, even more important factors underlying health and disease. Um, so, you know, I, I worry about others who are smarter than me shying away from that challenge. And I think that as the genetics experts, we have to figure this out. It's our responsibility ultimately to make sure that we continue to do the important research to understand uh, the genomic underlyings of, of disease and um, translate those to therapeutics or better management or prevention uh, and put that all in context with the biology, the social determinants of health, all of the other factors that are uh, outside the genetics realm. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add, you know, I do think, um, you know, and again, Nora and I talk about this, we go for walks and we talk about this all the time, but I do we pace think, a lot. yeah, we pace a lot. It's good for thinking and talking. Um, but I do think it's a little bit, um, if I, you know, sort of think about the field of genomics, I do think it's a little bit baked in to our training in the last couple of decades, it's particularly as we've got this technology that's just, you know, the fastest growing technology we've ever produced and creates these enormous databases, then uh, we become, you know, trying to really control things that are not genetics in our experiments. Uh, so we tend to do things like stratify data into groups and control as much as we can for confounders and just lump them all into one variable, environmental variable, and then perform an experiment, which allows us to make discoveries that are tied to the heritability of the trait. Um, but it can also really sort of bake in a lens and how we see the world in the, in the community. I put myself in that bucket that maybe, uh, maybe we start to forget, well, okay, so the reason we stratified 
the data into, let's say, population groups is much more to do with the environmental component that we're trying to account for in that experiment than any biological differences between the groups at all. Um, so uh, even though there, there sometimes can be some, they're rare, and in general, most of my biology is, this, is shared, but the environment may not be shared or um, societal structure may not be shared or built-in behavior might not be shared, and this is our way in which we're trying to account for that or, or control for it. So, you know, I, I think we sort of, we, you know, have developed a little bit of a lens, and I'm saying in the last couple of decades because that really was the birth of statistical genetics and, you know, in a large scale. Um, certainly we've had biometrics and statistical genetics for 100 years, but really when we've had in, in an empirical era of having large-scale data. Um, and I think that we maybe have to come back a little bit and think uh, and sort of embrace a little bit more the complexity of the data that we're thinking about that includes the social, behavioral, environmental determinants of health and inextricably the society we live in. Um, it might make us uncomfortable, uh, but, um, but there is also there's, you know, a, a chance for opportunities for learning that, you know, sometimes the solution isn't the genomic factor or it's the environmental factor or, uh, or a combination of both. Yeah, I think one, one of you said earlier that we're, it's the very early days. I, I think I have a deep suspicion that in terms of extricating our truly genomic data from the baked in social determinants of health, we're also early days there. I think yeah, I completely agree. Great distances to go, and that feels like kind of a nice place to wrap up. Thank you very much. Um, we're we're at the end of our time. I feel like I could go on a long time. Um, do you both in tandem want to say one last word <laughs> like, at the same time and on top of each other? Because <laughs> that would be the most fitting way to end the interview, really. <laughs> Oh, you don't okay. have to ask. Oh. We'll just do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Thank you. Uh, best wishes for a for a really a much better 2021 for you, thank for me, you. for everybody. For everyone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's a uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. I hope so. Uh, we can get back to just uh, t talking about. Uh, uh, regular genetics and that's really enough complexity and challenge for all of us. Um, uh, Cheers to that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you to the audience out there for listening. Please go to the website, BeagleLanda.com, follow me on Twitter, all that great stuff. Um, everybody, take care. Thank you very much. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is in vitae.